Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today, all the way on the other side of the pond, is Jason Mercula, fintech advisor and publisher of Substack newsletter Fintech Business Weekly. And welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for for waking up early and accommodating me. <laughs> now, this is the best time because this is actually when our brains are semi-working. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background? And um, more curiously, on a personal note, uh, what are you doing over in, in Europe right now? Because you had moved, right? You were, you were originally in Chicago? Yes. So I took a somewhat um, long and winding path to, I guess, financial services and, and to end up in uh, the Netherlands where, where I live now. Uh, but I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. I mean, by um, academic background, you know, I studied political science. Uh, and then did my master's degree in sociology at, at the University of Chicago, um, and actually, you know, decided I have my whole life to work in an office. I want to go do something else for a little bit before I uh, <laughs> uh, do that. And served in the Peace Corps for a couple of years, and had the luck to be assigned to the Eastern Caribbean. So I actually lived on the island nation of Saint Lucia for a couple of years from uh, like 2008 to 2010, more or less. And while I was there, I kind of self-taught um, myself uh, digital marketing. And back then, the tactics that were sort of the most popular were you know, SEO, search engine optimization, uh, and paid search were kind of like the dominant digital techniques, also affiliate marketing. Um, and when I came back to the States, uh, you know, I freelanced for a little while and ultimately was recruited by a company called Enova in the Chicago area. And this is kind of like a, I call it like the OG of fintech. It's been around since actually the early 2000s before fintech was a term uh, doing online lending uh, and more recently acquired the small business lender on deck. So it, it remains a publicly traded and profitable fintech lender in the consumer and SMB segment. So that's sort of you know, I entered the financial services space in a marketing capacity uh, working for that company. And then it's been a 10 plus year journey to actually learn and understand the different functional areas of, you know, how do all these pieces of running a lending business or running a consumer uh, financial services product fit together? Because there's a lot more to it than acquiring customers uh, if you're going to do it in a, in a scalable and profitable way. So that really kicked off my journey. Of, 10, 12 years ago. And from there, I went on to be an early team member at LendUp. I was more or less the 10th employee, helped build out and scale the lending business, uh, helped do some of the research for the credit card product, which was ultimately spun off as Mission Lane, uh, which is a, a standalone company now. I uh, was recruited to Goldman Sachs, where I helped build and launch the consumer lending product, Marcus. Uh, which obviously over the years that's expanded into a lot of other business lines uh, and products. Um, and then ultimately moved to London for a couple of years, working for a private student lending company, uh, and then joined my uh, partner in the Netherlands. So I actually relocated here uh, for personal reasons, not work reasons. And I've been living, uh, I was in Amsterdam for a year and then moved to nearby Utrecht uh, about seven or eight months ago since we uh, bought a house here, which was also an interesting experience. I will tell you doing the, uh, the mortgage process uh, here as a first time home buyer was certainly a uh, trial by fire. 
So, so let's let's talk about that a little bit because uh, you know going to a foreign country to have your first mortgage experience uh, is interesting, and there's a lot to unpack there with uh, your experience in the Peace Corps and all of this sort of credit-driven stuff at Goldman Sachs and LendUp and Marcus and doing student loans, personal loans, and all the other stuff. Um, what were you surprised at, you know, looking back at your experience at places like Goldman Sachs and LendUp and others, and tie that into your experience in getting a house and that type of stuff? What are you surprised at about credit? What's broken? What works? And what you've learned through your career? Yeah, so, I mean, I, uh, I came in as, as an outsider, right? I didn't, I didn't study finance. Uh, I'm I'm okay at math, you know, but I'm certainly not a, a statistician or a data scientist. And I think my opportunity, um, particularly at Lenda, but also at Goldman, was to understand how these different parts of the business fit together. And so, one example of something that surprised me, you know, I'm I'm a marketing guy. My mandate at at Lenda, uh, well, there's a lot of different mandates, but the main one was acquire customers. Um, and I'm thinking like, okay, you know, if I hit a certain target cost per acquisition, great. And not really sort of worrying about what happens after I, I acquire that customer. And, you know, as time went on and I sort of drilled into, in order to do my job as a marketer better, I need to understand what is the financial model, uh, how we calculate lifetime value, or in that case, present value, net present value to understand, are the customers I'm acquiring profitable? Why, why not? What are the levers to change that? And really, and this is honestly, you know, three or four years into working in lending businesses, um, and, and particularly in a small dollar lending product, did I realize that if a customer borrowed once, repaid and left, that typically wasn't a profitable customer for uh, a short-term lending business. The, the design of the product really to be successful and profitable was predicated on customers being repeat borrowers. And that was kind of a light bulb moment for me where it's like, okay, you know, the, the terms of this product are, are defined by state statute for the most part. Um, but the way that customers use the product and the way that, you know, businesses are, are incentivized to uh, interact with their customers potentially leads to this cycle of debt that you hear regulators talk about or consumer advocates talk about. And to be honest, that's not something I understood even in the first couple of years of working in that business. Um, so I guess that's sort of su surprise number one. Um, in a bit of a different uh, direction, you know, my surprise applying for a mortgage here in the Netherlands uh, was just how like antiquated the process was. Um, you know, for a, a microcosm of that, and this is during COVID, um, you know, pretty much all the bank branches were closed or very limited. And I had to physically go in to a bank branch to do their KYC process, know your customer process, and physically sign a signature card. Um, and then the actual mortgage uh, qualification and underwriting process took place 100% via email, unsecure email with PDFs of, you know, bank statements and social security cards, et cetera, et cetera, going back and forth, uh, and multiple rounds of printing, uh, wet signature, and then scanning and emailing back 
you know, mortgage offer, mortgage acceptance documents, and having worked in, in, you know, fintech for 10 plus years, including building some of the application flows um, at some of the lenders that I've worked for, it was a real shock to think like, wow, it's, you know, 2020, and th there is no online application, you know, no truly online application process for what I'm doing here. It's, it's all via email and all via phone. It, it, it felt very shocking. I, I think one of the, the, the misnomers uh, working in this business is that somehow there's like a banking school that you go to to get into it or, or that, you know, getting into fintech, it's like there's like a fintech school. Uh, I think every single person that I've ever talked to on, you know, any side of the sort of spectrum of financial services within the ecosystem started out in really random ways. And so, you know, you being from the political science side and going to the Peace Corps route and kind of ending up where you were and are um, is not surprising at all. And and I think that's the great thing about this industry is that, you know, you could sort of drive up on the retail side and some people are tellers and end up you know, running banks and some people, you know, come in from marketing and, you know, acquisition side and e-commerce and whatever and end up running parts of the bank. Uh, and that's what's so interesting when you think about still how broken it is, is that there's not a school, there's not a path, there's not a single way that people are coming in to like change this industry from the outside because there's such a mixture of people within. So, you know, this is probably why banking's as messed up as, as it is, is because, you know, there's not a banking school. So anyway, my, my two cents on that, but glad to hear that you did get a property in the end, regardless of how many PDFs and uh, calls you had to do. The, the other, the, the last little bit of, of uh, the shock on that, I think the, the interest rates on mortgages in the Netherlands are like 1.5%. And they'll lend 100% LTV. So you can borrow the entire cost of the property you're buying. And there is no credit underwriting in the way that we think about it in the United States. So, I mean, I've been here for, you know, at that point about a year. And there is sort of a credit bureau, but it, it does not work at all in the same way that it does in, in the U.S. or in the U.K. Um, and there is, no, there is no credit score. So it's basically, do you have a job? Do you have income? Can you support the payments? Um, so yeah, a lot of things that are, are were surprising in that process. That that's fascinating. That's certainly very very different than what we have here. Although we do have the same stack of paperwork. Um, that that's <laughs> common. Um, so that's actually a really good leeway into into something I'm really, really curious about. And that's something we often ask for people who have spent time on the ground on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, what are some of that differences that you've noticed in terms of what people are doing? What are they innovating? Um, how is the access to capital to even start a company? Because because in here, you know, we talk a lot about coastal areas. We talk a lot about the three big cities in the U.S. and how, you know, people um, with certain access to alumni clubs, right, or, you know, people mm -hmm. of, of certain areas of focus, they often um, tend to have the opportunity, more opportunity to get together. And, and you know, if you look at the, the FinTech um, ecosystem in the U.S., it's also very, depends on which area you are, um, they're kind of, you know, um, clustered together, if you will, for lack of better words. So how is it over on, on your side? Um, and what are, you know, some of the things that you noticed that, that is different or interesting? 
Yeah, so I, sh I should caveat my response by saying that, you know, even though I live here, probably, you know, 85, 90% of my sort of working attention is still focused on the U.S. market. So my, a lot of my experience here is actually from the perspective of a consumer. And then with that mindset of like, well, wait, why is this different? How does it work this way? It certainly doesn't help that, uh, you know, I came here, I think, three or four months before COVID lockdown started. So I, all of my interaction with other people in the fintech ecosystem here in, in the Netherlands has been, you know, Twitter and, and Slack and online. Um, you know, I do think one of the differences I noticed first as a consumer and then sort of explored like the implications in sort of fintech banking innovation uh, is how you pay for things. Uh, and, and they may sound uh, either confusing or obvious, uh, but when I first started coming here, it was to, to visit my partner who moved here and went to the grocery store, Albert Hein, and they do not accept Visa and they do not accept MasterCard. And so I had that apparently classic tourist moment of standing at the checkout and they're like, no, 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 you, you can't, you can't pay with that card. And I'm like, but it's, it's Visa. Like, how do you not take Visa? Um, and went to the ATM and got some euros and paid, you know, paid for my groceries or whatever. Uh, and it's because Maestro, which is like a sister network to MasterCard, is the dominant payment network here. Um, and actually, in doing some research recently, the interchange on Maestro transactions is capped at a flat two cents per transaction. If you compare that to the U.S., for uh, Durban exempt banks, so banks with less than 10 billion in assets, you know, a typical interchange might be like one and a quarter to one and a half percent. And the reason I found this interesting, and, and now some other things make sense, like that interchange is the revenue model that most US challenger banks depend on. So your Chimes and Veros and you know, Money Lions, a dominant share of their revenue is coming from interchange. Here in, in the Netherlands, uh, there is a challenger bank, uh, Bank, which I'm actually a customer of, um, but it is wildly unprofitable. It doesn't do any lending, and the interchange is you know, obviously capped at two cents per debit swipe. Uh, and as a result, the monthly fee, like the subscription fee I pay to use it, is actually higher than incumbent banks higher than ABN AMRO or Rabo or ING. And so it, from a consumer value proposition standpoint, it's like, well, wait a minute. Now I'm paying more than I would pay for an, an incumbent bank. The feature set is arguably in a sense worse because it's only a checking account type product. There's no credit card, there's no loans. It's, it's literally just a, a basic checking account. Um, and it's more expensive than if I just used a regular bank and there's no branch. Uh, there's no live you know, customer service or teller if I want it. Uh, and I think that that's part of the driving reason why in the consumer facing segment, you know, you've seen arguably less innovation here because there are fewer sort of business models, revenue streams available. One quick second point there, culturally um, borrowing and debt are just less commonly used in the Netherlands. And I think this is quite true in Germany as well. So of course, you know, we talked about mortgage, you know, that's financing, buying an asset, but consumer debt, the way that Americans or British are used to of credit cards, installment loans, et cetera, 
is just much, much less common here, owing to like a long cultural cultural heritage of like aversion to debt. That is interesting. Your your experience with the euro, by the way, apparently I still have euro in my wallet. I just found that out the other day. Um, that was from my last trip. That was a year and a half ago. It, was, it stayed there. Um, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because um, Brad and I were in Shanghai and Hongzhou. Was it three years ago now? And and it, it was it was a, a, a different um, experience in the sense that everyone was taking QR code. And we couldn't pay for a DD ride with our QR code. We couldn't pay for anything with a QR code because we just don't have it. And so we ended up using cash. And I still remember being yelled at by a cab driver in Mandarin, which I had no idea what he was saying. Um, Google Translate came in, in, in handy um, in a lot of situations. But it, it wasn't until later that I found out that apparently the taxi driver was upset at me because I was giving him cash and that was the only means that I had because um, they couldn't take cards and, and I don't have QR codes. So um, I think there are still a lot of uh, interesting aspects as much as we keep saying, you know, fintech is king and cash is going to die. I don't think it's going to die soon. Not just yet. Um, <laughs> what about in terms of the role of government, legislators, regulators, what is, how is that environment and encouraging or um, fintech innovation and inclusion, because as you know, in, in the US, we have a very unique system of 50 states, which act like 15 many countries. Um, how is that over in where you are? Yeah, so in some senses, it, that's that comparison to the, to the EU, it's not necessarily wrong, right? I often, for people who haven't uh, lived or done business, in the EU, I feel like there's often this sense of like, oh, great, like you, you know, you set up your business in one country and you have access to 27. Um, and perhaps in in some regards that that may be true, but it's 27 countries with different languages, different uh, cultural customs. Uh, you know, for example, like debt um, that I mentioned before, different payment networks, and, and even different regulations. Right, so it's. It's not necessarily as simple as, you know, okay, you set up in Amsterdam or you set up in, you know, Vilnius and you're just operating in 27 countries instantly. Uh, and I think if you look at, you know, N26 is a good example of that. And, and Bunk here as well has expanded regionally. Um, the other piece that, that makes it difficult, you know, the Netherlands is a country of 17 million people. So if you're thinking about the mandate of most venture-backed companies, it's that, you know, to the moon, rocket ship growth. And if you're starting your company in the Netherlands, like, well, that's not a very big TAM, you know? So uh, companies that are beginning their life here and are in that sort of venture model really have to, from day one, think at least regionally, if not internationally. Um, and that, of course, poses its own set of challenges. I mean, when I first moved here, I was looking at startups thinking, you know, maybe I want to work locally. And what I found was most of the early stage startups I talked to focused on the Benelux region. So Belgium, uh, Luxembourg and the Netherlands. And in a marketing or a product management uh, role, they would want somebody who speaks 
some of those languages, right? So like Dutch, French, German, and I'm like, I don't speak any of those languages. Um, so I think the, the, you know, the idea that there's a single set of regulation and, you know, you open up shop in one country and you have access to, you know, 450 million people living across 27 uh, is, is a dramatic oversimplification <laughs> of, of what the experience is probably like for most um, entrepreneurs and companies here. So uh, just switching gears a bit, you know, one of the one of the ways that we discovered your work, Jason, is because of your newsletter. Uh, and for those of you who haven't subscribed to FinTech Business Weekly, you absolutely must. So follow Jason on Twitter and uh, subscribe to his newsletter. Uh, this past week, you, you dove into a couple areas uh, into crypto. And I want you to kind of talk about your journey into looking at DoodleCoin. And, and maybe you can also touch on a little bit of the research that you on the creation of these high yield accounts where savers and borrowers are sort of matched together in these crypto exchanges to talk about this week's newsletter a bit and then and then you know how how has this journey of uh you know creating a, um, a, a, a server to mine on your macbook and all this other stuff like talk about that a little bit yeah absolutely i mean um i you know as we've talked about and i i talk about this in uh, the newsletter as well. You know, I come from, I guess, what we're now calling a TradFi, like a traditional finance background, even if most of my career hasn't been at, at banks, it's been at financial services companies that are, you know, operating in the US dollar with well-established set of regulators, whether it's state regulators or federal or both. Um, and, you know, it, it's undeniable the amount of attention that crypto uh, writ large has been getting, you know, in the past 12, 18, 24 months, you know, obviously on the consumer side, um, you know, with things like Dogecoin, uh, Bitcoin, of course, and then the high yield accounts you're mentioning, uh, and now increasingly on the regulatory side. And so I really decided, you know, I need to spend some time, you know, read everything I come across, talk to as many smart people as I can uh, convince to talk to me, and then really you know, take on an experiential project to see like, okay, what, what are the mechanics of this? How, you know, how does it work? I actually failed in my attempt to create DoodleCoin because I could not get my uh, forked source code to recompile correctly um, and, and ended up creating uh, a token instead. But even that itself was you know, instructive in the sense that um, I think before I sort of sat down and did this project, I had this notion of crypto as sort of this like unified, gigantic universe that was like interchangeable, right? Ethereum versus Bitcoin versus any of these other, you know, tokens or whatever. It's all kind of the same thing. Uh, and that is definitely not true. Um, I mean, from a technological standpoint, it is not true. And I avoided getting into like too much of the you know proof of stake versus proof of work and and some of the underlying um, uh, technology of how these different blockchains operate. Um, but there are meaningful differences in you know Bitcoin versus Ethereum versus some of these other uh, altcoins or other projects, um, namely and. Uh, I hopefully I won't like piss off any crypto people by mischaracterizing this. Um, 
but I sort of think of Ethereum as either like a base layer or a reserve currency on top of which you build other applications. Um, and that is, at least for me, the biggest takeaway of what's different versus uh, Bitcoin, which most people tend these days to sort of conceptualize as digital gold in the sense that it's some sort of asset that's uh, uncorrelated to other asset classes and a hedge against inflation. Whereas Ethereum and the applications and smart contracts and tokens that are built on top of that um, generally attempt to offer some sort of incremental functionality. So it's not just like, here's an asset you're holding, it's uh, you know, a decentralized autonomous uh, organization, or it's a non-fungible token or some other um, program or application that's, that's built on top of it. So let's let's continue on on um, Brad's point about your newsletter. And, and by the way, yes, I cannot stress enough. Do subscribe to Jason's newsletter as my Sunday morning food. Although I did notice when you when you came back to the states for a bit, you threw my schedule off. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> is it not dropping yet? And I kept looking for it. Um, there were not too many people that had done that to me, by the way, Jason, that I'm actually sitting and waiting for the newsletter. Yours is brilliant. Um, so let's let's look at that a little bit beyond uh, last week's Dudocoins. You before that, you also talked a lot about um, business models, right? I remember you getting into the various buy now, pay later, which is yet another big thing that everyone is talking about from banks to fintech startups and whatnot. Um, you also talk a lot about how the industry is going to change going forward and, and all of that. So it's really broad and it's fun. It's like going to an amusement park of sorts. Amongst all of these things, what are some of the areas that you're most fascinated by? Um, and if we were to say, Jason, you're the Oracle now, you have five months left in the year. What do you think is going to happen? Um... I did write a prediction uh, newsletter at the end of 2020, correctly calling the Goldman plus Apple buy now, pay later. So I have one tick um, already. Um, but I think, and this should be no surprise to anyone who's sort of active in this space, the, the area, the consumer facing areas that I'm the most excited about are basically a combination of open banking plus uh, payroll data APIs. Um, and, you know, I have, you know, even predating my time in the industry, had a strong interest in uh, sort of underserved communities and what what is the right intersection of public policy and private, you know, private companies or private innovation to better serve uh, a broader cross-section of people. And I think some of the opportunities around open banking, um, and this uh, was mentioned obliquely in uh, President Biden's executive order recently is around fostering competition. And ideally that competition, you know, improves outcomes for consumers. So in this case, um, and rulemaking is ongoing under Dodd-Frank 1033, but basically the idea that a consumer should own his or her bank account data rather than, you know, Chase or Bank of America or Chime or Vero for that matter. And that I, as a consumer, should have the ability to uh, port, you know, I think they use the word download, but basically, you know, port through a secure API that information to another institution. And if you think about uh, historically, you know, 
why is it so difficult to change bank accounts? Um, you know, I have to go and update, you know, ACH routing and account numbers everywhere. I've got these credit cards I need to update. Like it, it makes the accounts sticky, which if you're an incumbent institution is a benefit. Uh, when I moved to the UK, something I was like flabbergasted by was the current account switch service, uh, which I haven't done the research, but I have to assume it's government mandated, where you could basically seamlessly switch from one bank account to another. I think it had like a seven day uh, guarantee that everything would switch over correctly, both direct deposits um, uh, and direct debits. So money coming in, money going out and make it seamless and automated. And that allows customers to easily port their bank account from one place to the other without all the hassle of updating all of this information. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity around open banking. We'll have to see what kind of uh, comments come in and what sort of rulemaking the CFPB uh, lands on as far as what data, what data and who this rule applies to about what, you know, what needs to be shared and how. Um, and then on the payroll API side, and this is a, this is a bit newer of a space that's really gotten very uh, uh, a lot of attention probably in the last like six to 12 months is basically that same idea, but applied to payroll data. And if you think about, you know, what is the information that's sitting in ADP or paychecks or Gusto or any of these other companies? It's what is my gross income? What's my net income? Where's that, uh, the difference going? Healthcare, you know, 401k, um, different kinds of insurances. That's a really rich data set that right now a customer has little ability to access. Maybe it's manual via, you know, PDFs um, or even, you know, a lender needing to call their HR uh, to verify some piece of information. So uh, standardizing and uh, making that programmatic via APIs uh, allows consumers to have control over verifying their income, verifying their employment, and you know whatever ideas we have, uh, haven't even thought of yet that can be built on top of that data and that functionality. So those are probably two of the areas I'm, I'm most excited to see mature and develop in the coming you know, six, 12, 18 months. Change is coming. That's what they say. Um, your your comment about the current account being able to switch from one bank to the other it reminds me of mobile number portability that we had in the US <laughs> with Telco because I I have been in Telco for fifteen years and I remember um, from you know wireless incumbent perspective we hated it we absolutely hated it we thought you know it's going to cause so much trouble it's it's impossible to get it work and we found a million reasons why it would not work um, and in the end <laughs> you know what that was that was history right now we don't even give it a second thought we take it for granted that you know if a, if a consumer switch from one carrier to the other they are going to be able to carry the number with them um so hopefully we will be able to see that in the future, because I can tell you, I did not love the bank that I've been banking with for 30 years, but just the, the sheer hassle of thinking about what I need to move over all my auto pay, mm -hmm. auto deposit and all of that, it just gives me so much headache that I'm like, all right, I don't like it, but I'm just going to stick with that because otherwise it's just too much work. Um, so, you know, we have room for improvement, hopefully, but um, this has been fascinating. 
And see, I told you, I, it is really hard to keep this conversation to 30 minutes, but we sort of kind of did. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today, Jason. Um, and thank you all for listening in to another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you all next week. <laughs>